This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 814, A Conversation with Chuck Austin. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 814. It's my conversation with Chuck Austin. Chuck Austin uh, is maybe an infamous name in the comic industry, but uh, I don't know if that's necessarily always deservedly so. Uh, he's written a lot of stuff. Uh, he's worked on Uncanny X-Men, Exiles. He did some amazing stuff on Exiles, uh, which actually he mentions uh, briefly here that you know he's had someone go come up to him and say, like, you know, oh, I hate what you're doing on the X-Men, but I love your Exiles. Uh, he did War Ma- U.S. War Machine uh, for Marvel as well. Uh, he's done a lot of different animation projects throughout his career. Uh, he's currently back in comics, working on Edgeworld uh, with Pat Olive, who was recently on the show, uh, just a few episodes ago, episode 810. Uh, he's the artist on uh, Edgeworld, and uh, Chuck Austin's writing it, so we get into uh, what it's like kind of working on that format. Um, one th- I actually think it's a good idea to go back and listen to the Pat Olive episode first, because when we talk about... Um, you know, the different aspects of working on Edgeworld, I do reference the interview with Pat a fair bit in terms of uh, how they write differently, uh, or sorry, art write and layout pages differently than a normal comic because they're using the guided view uh, that is native to comicsology as a, as a integral part of how they develop the comic, as opposed to what you would usually do with a print comic. So I think it's a really interesting um, discussion in both parts, both with uh, Pat and with Chuck, just kind of breaking down how that process works and changes uh, when you know that the presentation or the is going to be different because of the guided view. Uh, so we get into that with both. So I think it's actually helpful for the overall conversation if you're interested in that stuff and interested in what Chuck says here is to go back and listen to the episode with Pat as well. Plus, Pat's just a great guest in general. But uh, I will mention one thing for people who did listen to the Pat Olive interview. I, com- <laughs> I completely forgot, and so did Pat, uh, that I'd asked Pat for, Pat for one great Chuck Austin uh, question to kind of stump him and then we both forgot about it and so uh, it was only after i had uh, talked to chuck that pat was like oh i forgot my question i'm like ah darn i forgot too so uh unfortunately that uh, is something we talked about at the end of the pat Olive interview that did unfortunately did not come to pass but uh, otherwise this was a really good conversation i really enjoyed talking to chuck um he's remarkably uh, forthright about you know he, he had some bad and bad um you know experiences in the comic industry and things happened um i think he's you know I, I again i think that it was kind of unfair and it's kind of that early nascent kind of internet and vitriol that you know now we're kind of used to the idea that you know there's always a very vocal minority uh that comes online often um but i feel like you know his x-men run probably experienced more of that kind of early rumblings of that um and he kind of became maybe the poster child for that period but i I, again don't necessarily think that's fair um but he you know he's a good sport about everything considering and i think it helps that it's been (laughs) years down the road and he's able to kind of look back on this stuff and have a certain perspective uh but i anyways i'm very appreciative to Chuck for coming on the show and uh, chatting about Edgeworld and I'm hoping maybe I can get him and Pat to come back on when the whole thing's done uh, to kind of have a conversation with the two of them uh, to kind of you know it'd be interesting just to hear their, their interplay because it sounds like they're good friends and they work well together and they're great collaborators so I would love to have them uh, on the same uh, Skype call to you know have a, a chat about Edgeworld once it's all completed and maybe kind of uh, go through it um, 
you know, issue by issue and kind of break down some of the choices and how it worked. And um, I'm always interested in how, especially creator-owned works, uh, really operate in terms of how, you know, collaborators really go together. Because obviously, when you're working on a big two project, you may not have any choice on who you're working with in terms of uh, who's the writer or who's the artist. Uh, whereas when it's creator-owned, it's it's a different ballgame completely, especially when, you know, Pat and Chuck came into Edgeworld kind of working on this together. Anyways, I'm giving away a lot of material, so I should jump right into the interview. But I just want to say I do think this is a really enjoyable interview. Uh, uh, Chuck was a great guest, and again, I'm hoping to have him back on in the future, uh, him and Pat, to chat about Edgeworld once it's all complete, because uh, so far, we've only had one issue, but it's been one hell of an issue. It was really enjoyable. Again, I think uh, if you're reading it, uh, you should be using the guided view, because it's really how it's meant to be portrayed in a way that is foreign from kind of other regular mainstream comics that happen to have guided view, whereas this was kind of designed with guided view in mind, and it really kind of changes the experience and in a good way, because again, it's designed for that format. Anyways, if you want to email me, you can email me at uh, comicshenanigans at gmail.com. Uh, you can rate the show on, I guess, Apple Podcasts, listen to us on Apple Podcasts. I like saying iTunes, it was easier. Uh, and uh, you can also listen to us on Stitcher. But uh, thanks again, and uh, let's jump right into the episode as I welcome Chuck Austin to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. Enjoy. Chuck, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. How are you today? Thank you. Thank you, Adam. I appreciate it. So I always ask everyone who, when they come on who's ever worked in comics, I always kind of ask, what's your origin story with comics? When did they first kind of enter your, your life in some way? Oh, uh, wow, that's, uh, that's interesting. I guess I should have researched this a little bit better so I would have an answer ready. Um, my, my origin into comics, I don't know, it was a weird one. Um, I had literally no interest in it and then my I had I had a friend who was really into it and he kept trying to talk me into it and I had no interest in comics whatsoever and then, <laughs> and then one week I had to go stay with my dad uh, who was um, living with his new girlfriend and her her two daughters and we didn't always get along, so I was looking for an excuse to sort of stay out of the house as much as possible. And, and uh, the only thing nearby was a Seven Eleven that had a lot of comic books. And uh, I literally went up and bought two or three a day, and just went into a park someplace and read. And, uh, and from that point on, I was hooked. Uh, I think my first comic book was Commandy Twenty One or something. It's the one with the giant crab on the cover. That's he's on the cliff, and the crab is trying to grab him. Um, <laughs> And uh, um, and yeah, that was it. I was a I was a Kirby fanatic early on, and then when I um, as I got older and more mature, I gravitated over to Neil Adams, and and that was it. I mean, just the the amazing creativity and the the, the artwork and everything. But I was a late bloomer. I didn't. I don't think I got into it until I was in maybe eleven, oh, eleven wow. or twelve. It does seem to yeah. be kind of an older age from most creators that I've talked to. I mean, I, I'm kind of in the similar boat, though. I don't think I really got into comics until I was like maybe 12 or 13, and it feels like everyone else was kind of done with them by then. Yeah, yeah, it, it's interesting. Um, so you got in at 12 or 13, sort of late, a little later, too, and stuck? Yeah, it never really went away. Uh, I think my parents were always kind of waiting for me to outgrow it, and it never quite happened. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, comics have always yeah, just been yeah, there for my me. So, too. yeah, my dad, my dad always wanted to be an artist, and I didn't find that out actually until I got into comics. And so he was actually very supportive because I started copying the drawings out of the comics. But 
I don't know. I guess if your parents see that they, there's what potential for maybe some kind of a career choice, <laughs> they're a little more open to the idea, staying with it longer. But um, when, yeah, no, no, they would they would much rather I had become a doctor. <laughs> when did you first kind of um, realize that you were going to you know be a creative force of some kind, that you had ideas and that you were you know a talented artist to yourself? When did you kind of first start to realize that this is something you could do? Well, I guess I always thought, I mean, I was always interested in artwork uh, from a very young age. I'd been drawing forever. My, I had a neighbor who would give us stacks of free paper. He worked at a paper mill, and he would give me, he just loved giving me and my brother stacks of free paper, and then we would get pencils and crayons and whatever was handy, and we just would spend hours drawing stuff. And uh um, interestingly, even though I wasn't into comics, I was into all of the Marvel superhero animation stuff at the mm. time. And I had a, a Captain Action uh, figure that you could change. You could change his clothes into Batman or Superman or mm-hmm. any other kind of superhero. Um, and uh, so I was in, really into that and really drawing and making my own adventures and telling stories. But I don't think I really thought of it as a, as a, like a career in any way it was just something that I loved to do and my family recognized it so they they supported it and they were always giving me stuff to draw with Um, I don't think they ever thought of it as a career I think they just were excited that it kept me and my brother quiet (laughs) (laughs) not not running around breaking things so um, but I I guess I I mean if I had a if I had a sculpture class I would always try to make something really weird like a dragon instead of a (laughs) instead of a pot so um, uh, I was always kind of pushing things in a, in a different direction than what people expected so creativity has always been there I don't think I thought of it as a career until maybe my last year in high school and, and then, even then my career, my guidance counselor tried to talk me out of it my first year in college I was a pre-med major oh, Wow! and I got a C in chemistry and that, that put an end to that <laughs> so uh so I fell back on art. It was my great grandmother actually who pulled me aside and said, "You know, she was she was not much longer for the world, but she pulled me aside and she said, you 'You're an artist. You can, you can find a way to make a living as an artist. You should give up this doctor nonsense.'" <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I did. I gave up the doctor nonsense and devoted myself fully to creating art and comics and stuff like that. So. So how how do you navigate kind of your your entrance? That I mean, because I mean, I think a lot of people think of you and they think maybe you more as a writer. Because I mean, especially if they were you know reading comics in the early two thousands, your name was around a lot and you're writing a lot of books. But it's interesting that you know again you have more of a creative arts background. So how do you kind of make that transition? Like you you get into comics really early and then eventually transition more into writing. How does that transition happen? Is it more natural or how did it kind of occur? Um, I, I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, you, you, well, you know, I guess I can only talk about my case specifically. I guess it happens differently for everybody, mm-hmm. but, um, I, even when I was drawing, it was never for illustrative purposes. It was always to tell a story. I was always putting things in panels and I wanted to be a strip artist actually when I was younger. I wanted to be, um, uh, Charles Schultz or, or, um, uh, Stan Lind or somebody like that, and mm-hmm. so I used to cut out the newspaper strips out of the 
out of the papers and save them and then read through them and you know copy the drawings but but it was always to serve telling a story of some kind and so uh, in college I had some creative writing courses uh, as part of my you know my English requirement for pre-med and and I, I, I loved those classes I loved writing in those classes and I started to realize that it was really more the storytelling and the writing part of it that was important to me but I love telling my own visual stories because I had a very uh, kind of a distinct uh, f- film way of seeing things. One of my best friends was a film major, and he wanted to. Uh, he and I used to work together making his little movies in college all the time. And so, um, so I guess I've always been thinking in terms of visual storytelling, and that's where comics and, and animation and movies come from, as far as my interests go. But um, the transition over entirely to writing was a kind of a gradual thing. What happened was I had. Uh, at least as far as like turning professional, I hadn't really written anything professional other than, than a pitch for for an animated series that I had sold for to uh, Film Roman. Uh, wound up airing on the Sci-Fi Channel mm-hmm. quite a while ago. I remember exactly when? In the late '90s, I think. And that was really kind of the first professional writing that I had done. But when I sold War Machine to to Joe Casada at Marvel. Um, they really liked it internally. They loved the, the storytelling and the fact that I was um, very because at, at that point I had been working in animation for a number of years, so I had a pretty strong storyboarding background. And so, as far as telling visual stories, they liked it. And um, then I don't know exactly what happened. Things were always sort of in turmoil up there, but they had an opening on the X Men title, uh, Uncanny X Men, and it was in the same office where. Um, War Machine was being edited, and okay. so they used to share the stuff around and say, "Hey, have you read this? Have you seen it? It looks pretty cool." And so uh, uh, Pete Franco and and uh, um, Mark Powers uh, actually called me one day and said, "Hey, how would you feel about writing the X Men?" And I almost fell over. <laughs> I thought, "Why? <laughs> Why would you want me to write the X Men?" And they really liked they just really liked War Machine, and they wanted to see what my take would be. And they needed a writer, so um, so I said, "Yeah, I'll, I'll give it a try." But I think you're going to have to kind of babysit me through the process. So, so they, you know, and they were happy to do that. They had a lot of ideas for stories and characters and things that they wanted to do. They wanted to bring North Star onto the team, and uh, you know, I was all for it. And and uh, so started writing just a bunch of kind of one and done stories, and and then they really liked them. Then they switched over to doing. Uh, trade paperbacks, and so we started writing longer arcs to sort of fill out an individual trade paperback, and, and it was all a learning experience, you know. I mean, I was I hadn't ever really done it professionally, and here I was, kind of learning on the job and having a great time. I, I actually loved the X Men quite a bit. I was, had been a fan for years, I think, since the Claremont Burn days. So, mm-hmm. so I had a great time. I enjoyed it. I, did I answer your question, or did I just sort of wander off in left field? No, no. I mean, I, I think you did, but I, I, I like it because again, it, it kind of traces the arc of your career. I'm curious about you bring up an interesting point um, in the early 2000s when the way it, it started feeling from a consumer perspective, the way obviously comics were written started to change because this kind of quote unquote tra- right for the trade mentality, and it was never really codified, but everyone kind of got the sense that that's where the sea change was happening. What and you kind of mentioned that they kind of you know. 
I guess they, they everyone kind of knew that this is where maybe the writing was going and that more decompression was happening. So what was editorial's kind of feeling at the time that we need to pad things differently because now we're going to be doing a collected format? Was that ever, was it very um, explicit in terms of how it was talked about with you? Not explicit, no. Um, the only thing that was explicit was that, this, remember, that I, this was when Bill Jemis had taken over the company and his background was more um, like mainstream stuff and and so he wanted to try to find a way to get comics to reach out into the mainstream so he was looking essentially as the uh, for the trade paperbacks to kind of be more of a, a movie or a long story approach um, there was a lot of discussion about the decompressed storytelling uh, I think that's the term still isn't it decompressed yeah, storytelling for sure um uh, you know, it had been pioneered by a, a number of different people at the time, and everybody in, internally was all talking about it. I mean, we we liked a lot of the things that were being done with it. Uh, Frank Miller had been doing a lot of stuff like that, and and you know, obviously, it was pretty inspiring to some of us young writers who were really interested in doing something a little different. So I don't think there was there was never any explicit mandate to me. It was just that they were seeing a change in um, in the way uh, comics were selling in the in the in the comic shops. The sales were on individual pamphlet issues were, were sort of drying up, but the trades were actually increasing because people would come in and you know instead of coming in once a week they. They were getting busy with their lives, but they still liked their comics, so they would come in every five or six months and pick up a, a couple of trades instead. So the trade sales were, were going up and staying pretty consistent. So they wanted to start gearing things in a lot of ways towards the trades because they thought that that might be the future, the way things that were, things were going. It wasn't really a question of decompressed storytelling so much as it was just telling an, an arc within a trade. Mm. Um, so, um, you know, we would take a... Uh, a story idea and um, and plan it out as something that was going to be take a, take a few more issues as opposed to single issues. And uh, in some ways, I think that worked against me. I think I'm more of a single issue kind of guy or a, a two issues and done kind of guy. That's kind of the approach that we're taking with Edge World right now, and I, mm-hmm. I like it. Um, and even up at Marvel, they used to tell me that those were the stories that they preferred that I when I was writing them. So. Hmm. Um, but you know that you, you try to go with what the business is, is asking for. Um, um, but I, I think that was I think that was the genesis of all of that. At least that's what what I was hearing. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't hearing anything specific about decompressed storytelling. Um, Something I'm curious about. So I mean, you go from you know, working on War Machine, where again it's your own project, and now you're writing for other artists. So how do you? kind of figure out how to how to write for other artists i mean that's i mean you're again thinking very visually on your own and so now you're having to communicate to uh, that to other people are you using full scripts are you going a little looser or what is the collaborative process like because again you're a new writer and you're trying to come up with your own vision and then you're working with these different artists who are coming on the book uh one of which or a couple of which were brand new to x titles or really mainstream books so how did you kind of navigate that process at least you got the start with ron garney who i think probably made it a little easier yeah, no, Ron made everything easier. Ron was terrific. Um, uh, the, um, the the reason that I approached it the way that I did is because is because of my animation background. I was I was so used to thinking in terms of visual storyboards when I would think of a story that um, it would just came naturally to me to describe what I was seeing in each image. Um, plus, it also helped me to kind of edit down the material 
so that I could focus on the things that were that I wanted to hit and give the right amount of time to, as opposed to kind of trusting that the artist was only going to spend, you know, one panel or two panels on this, as opposed to you know five or six panels. Um, uh, not that they were necessarily doing anything wrong. It was just a, it was just a different approach. Like I was I was often trying to get. Even in the age of decompressed storytelling, I always wanted to try to get in enough material in a comic to make it feel like it was worth the the, the dollar or two dollars or three dollars that it would cost for a single issue. So, um, so that was the, just an natural natural extension for me was to sit down and write out panel descriptions. I think that it started because when I was reading with Alan Moore on Miracle Man, that's how he used to write his scripts, and mm-hmm. I saw the value in it because when I was working from his scripts, you never felt constrained it just felt like he was giving you this visual information that was like a springboard that just caused your imagination to go into overdrive and and so the writers i mean the artists that i get along best with when i'm writing this way are the ones that that do that 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 take what i'm giving them and then run with it and find a maybe they'll have a a better or a different way of interpreting it and i'm not going to argue with them about that if they if they they've got something um that works better than what I put down on paper, um, but uh, uh, but it was just more of a natural extension for me. I, I was just basically dry, describing in in on the page uh, what I would draw if I were drawing this myself. And uh, so when I'm working with somebody like Pat on Edgeworld, he he'll take what I give him and he'll follow it fairly closely. But you know he'll change things when he feels like he can do a bit a better job. And he, he he's got such a great storytelling sense that. That I trust his judgment. When he switches it around, it's it's always better. It's always an improvement over what I had put in there. Mm-hmm. And sometimes he'll break things up into additional panels. Sometimes he'll combine a panel in, uh, from two into one, and you know it'll have this it'll have the same amount of impact or more. Um, sometimes he'll he'll write or he'll draw an expression that I wasn't imagining, but it'll give me when I when it comes back to me and I need to write the dialogue for the letterer. I'll change the line because it fits better with the drawing or the expression that he gave. Hmm. So um, it's still a collaborative process, but it's just easier for me as somebody who's been doing this pro- professionally for a long time to, to describe my panels that way than it is to just say, uh, okay, first they run to the car and now they're all in the car racing down the street. And, you know, <laughs> it's, it's just, I, I just don't think that way. So you speak of Edgeworld, so we should you know, mention for people who don't know uh, that Edgeworld is your new comic from Comixology Originals. You're doing it with Pat Olive, who was just on this show actually a couple weeks ago. Um, so I, first of all, I love the first issue. I thought it was great. So where did this concept first come from for oh, you? Because I talked with Pat, obviously, about how you guys kind of collaborated and how you kind of brought it to him. But you know, had this idea been percolating in your mind for a while? or It, it actually has in, in little bits and pieces, but not in... In any kind of a specific way, you know, I had you have questions about this one thing or or this thing that you saw that inspires you in one direction, but it wasn't getting very specific until I guess about five years ago. I was going through um, kind of a rough patch in life, and so I was spending a lot of time revisiting my childhood, uh, trying to uh, uh, find things that um, diverted me um, that I didn't have to think too much about. Um, so I rediscovered those old Commandy comics and and uh, started watching the old westerns that I used to watch with my mom and my grandmother and <laughs> and in the process of watching some of the things that um, that I had in, in a lot of ways just forgotten about um, 
I was actually kind of surprised. Like some of the some of the old TV westerns were so well written. I mean, the stories were just so good. The characters were really solid, and and I thought, you know, actually this would be this would be a great approach to to a comic. So I had a kind of a general idea of what I wanted to do as a science fiction thing. I mean, the science fiction and westerns have been sort of wrapped up in each other for a long time. Star Trek, the original Star Trek was pitched as wagon train in space. And, <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's Firefly, of course, everybody draws comparisons to Firefly, but, um, but it was just kind of that, um, that weird frontier world. Um, people are crazy out here <laughs> kind of stuff that was really fascinating. Um, especially some of like the early gun smoke seasons. There was this is writer named John Meston and and uh, Catherine Height that were they were just phenomenal. They were so great. They had two women writers on that show and they brought a very specific point of view to the episodes. And sometimes and they were sometimes they were just about what it was like really living on the frontier with crazy people who couldn't fit in with society and, <laughs> and it started forming the idea in my head well what if this were even weirder what if you were out on the edge, edge of space somewhere out, way out on the edge of the milky way where aliens live and and you know the world is this um sort of dodge city in space and and uh so that was kind of i guess where the general gist of it came from was a lot of those old westerns. I was a huge John Wayne fan. Uh, War, War Wagon is one of my favorite movies. My son and I have watched that recently. Um, and uh, and then when I when Pat called and said he wanted to do something together, um, uh, we pitched a couple of ideas back and forth. And I said, "Well, I got this one weird thing, but it's not really very fully formed." And I said, "You know, I said it's about this planet on the edge of the Milky Way, and it's about all these weird aliens that live there." and and Pat goes, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, send, send me some stuff. I go, well, I don't really have anything. He goes, well, write some stuff up. Let's let's start talking about that. And then he started doing sketches, and I started writing up, you know, character descriptions and outlines. And then I started writing full scripts, and then we started passing stuff back and forth, and it just kind of went nuts. Um, the, even if nobody was ever going to buy it, I think he and I were just going to uh, photocopy these things and hand them out on street corners. We were just so excited about it. So, <laughs> so that was sort of where it came from. It didn't really start to come into anything solid though until Pat and I started working together. Um, you know, he had thoughts, I had thoughts. I mean, he, even he did a recent thing where he he sent out a how we did it, um, breaking down from script to final uh, colored page and. And I went through and read the script. I hadn't read it since I first sent it to him. And it describes Killian wearing a hat. And and I, I look at Killian now and I think, wow, I would. How did I ever think he would look good in a hat? <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, that's how she changed. You know, Pat had some strong ideas about visuals. He gave Killian a beard when I didn't think of him as a beard, but it really worked for the character that he had and for sort of the you know the down and out lifestyle he's got and. I, I just got really we just got more and more excited we just started getting each other worked up it was like two kids I told them recently it was like two kids hanging out in their basement you know coming up with superhero ideas it was just it was the best it was so great so I want to get into you and Pat for a second but one thing I, I just I really enjoyed and I asked him about it and he said this kind of came from your sense of humor one thing I really liked about the first issue is when you have uh, the moment I won't spoil what it's about but just um, Killian and his pants 
Um, and I just, okay. it's, it's just such a great moment and you don't even think about it until it happens. And you're like, oh yeah, that's why, that's why, you know, Pat did all the shots that, that with that framing. And it's just such a great moment. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he did that wonderfully. I was so pleased with it. I, la- I, you know, I wrote the damn thing and I still laughed when I read it. <laughs> it, uh, it's yeah, it's a uh, it's one of my favorite moments. But that was part of it. I mean, we were he and I both have a kind of a dark sense of humor. He's got much more of a, a horror take. He loves old horror movies and stuff, and um, he also loves a lot of the same science fiction stuff that I do. So um, so yeah, he's just more, he's more than happy to kind of push it in these directions that. I would sort of dip my toe in and I'd say, you know, I kind of got this weird, maybe a little creepy idea. And he goes, oh, wow, I can't wait to draw that. <laughs> so, so, yeah, we're we're pretty in sync on a lot of this stuff. Yeah, he did a great job with that pants scene. <laughs> <laughs> one thing uh, Pat had talked about, and I'm curious from your writing standpoint, how you approached it, was that he said that one of the benefits of knowing the guys were going through comicsology is that you knew that, especially as a digital first, that you were going to be leaning on you know, the guided view is kind of dictating part of how he would lay out the panels. And so there are specific moments that work better if you actually go through the guided view that Comixology has as opposed to just looking at the page because it gives more visceral surprise. Did you find that it, it kind of challenged you to approach it in a different way when you're writing the script as well? Again, coming from a, with a storyboarding kind of sensibility? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, one of the things that most appealed to me when Comixology first expressed interest was Guided View, uh, because that's how we present um, storyboards now in animation. We don't we don't pin them up on the wall the way we used to. We actually present them as a PDF, one frame at a time. It's almost like you know pitching Guided View comic because you have the text. You don't always ha- you don't have the uh, the voices. The director will just pitch it and read the script. So hmm. um, so it's very similar kind of process. And when we switch over from the old process of hanging the stuff on the wall, I realized, wow, this is just so much better because, you know, you get those surprises. You, get, you don't know what's coming next. You can't see the next page. You can't see the dead guy in the next panel, you know. <laughs> um, and even, But even little things, like when like there's a, I don't think it's going to spoil anything. I think that the pages are already out there, but there's the scene at the beginning where the historian goes in to talk to the old psychic and, and he, makes, he basically makes a crack about, you know, how even if her information is worthless, I'm still going to have to pay you anyway. And when I read it, and I mean, I'd read it a dozen times as a PDF through the, the lettering, the coloring, the inking, all those processes. And and it wasn't until I read it in Guided View that I got to that panel change, and she's got that one eye open, sort of snarky look on her face. <laughs> and I laughed out loud. I thought, yeah, this is these are the little things that you get out of the Guided View experience. And believe me, I love paper comics. You know, I, I have boxes of them. I... I still love going through them i love the smell and i get that people want to read them on the toilet you know i mean that's the one thing people always tell me oh i want to read it on the toilet but um but i uh, there is just something from a from a writer's standpoint from a storyteller standpoint that just really appeals to me about the guided view thing and then you know in this one you know not to spoil anything but there's a couple of surprises in this thing that if you're reading it in guided view it catches you off guard and uh and i like that as a writer i really like that I want my audience to be a little off guard, a little surprised. Well, it's interesting because it allows you to change the pacing of a comic, like in a, in a much more visceral way. Like, I mean, obviously, comics are an interesting medium in terms of how we, 
how fast you read can sometimes change how fast the comic feels like it's going, but the guided view kind of slows that down a little bit, or and also speeds it up when you're in a tense moment, in a way that just looking at the full page does kind of not let you have. Yeah, yeah, yep, yeah, yeah I, I totally agree with you. It, it really does, it gives you more of that element of pacing and time. Um, so we can slow it down. I can put more word balloons in. Pat can draw a hundred characters, and you kind of—it's you know—we're getting back to sort of Scott Cloud understanding comic stuff, but it's a similar kind of thing. You know, you you can adjust the pacing of the reader by having more information in a panel or less information in a panel, and and uh, yeah, I, I, I really like the guided view thing. I know it drives the retailers crazy because they want the print versions, but mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, but I just from a from a from a purely from a writer's standpoint, you know, when I'm trying to engage an audience, that's just too important. I love it. One thing I mentioned to Pat, which, uh, so when I go back to that pants moment from before, is that when you see that, when that panel is on guided view, um, you get so many details there because of where your mind, like your eyes go, like you looking at the person speaking, then you're looking at Killian, but then you look at all the background characters and his, his acting and his art is so good that you actually spend oh God, a minute yeah. just kind of taking it all in because there's a full sequence happening here and it, it's so deceptive and I feel like on one page you might have missed it whereas having it in guided view you get the time to kind of see all those details and you really get to live in that moment and it makes it so much funnier yeah you know that's a good point that's, that, and I agree, absolutely agree with you but that's one of the things that I always love about Pat's artwork and why I've always loved working with him is that he thinks about that stuff when he when he's putting it in there he he wants you to focus on this first and then that and then the other stuff and so he's consciously aware of those things and and he'll even work with the colorists you know to help knock back the stuff that he doesn't want you to notice first he, and bring forward the things that he does want you to see um, so it 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 yeah, it really it, it just changed the whole experience, and I you know I know that there's a lot of people that prefer to read it as a even on Comicsology as the full pages, but you know if you get a chance, just try it with the guided view and see if it doesn't have a different feel for you. I think you you might be surprised. I mean, I think and a big part of that probably is because you guys did put a lot more thought into it because you knew that you were going to be able to use it. Like obviously your your quote unquote page turns, but really your your panel turns are different because you are thinking about the fact that it's going to be somewhat isolated. So it's allowing you to you know just challenge it and do it differently. Whereas if it wasn't meant to be that way, it's going to feel different. It's going to not have the same impact. I think. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely true. Um, and Pat is, I mean. At first, I was I felt guilty because I was taking away from him the dynamics of the page, you know, characters breaking out of panels and things like that. And and the guided view it works best if you work um, with the, the screen format as best you can, so that you don't do a lot of wide panels or or funky shaped panels. And and I, I felt like I was restricting him, but he he actually rose to it, and he really he found that he really enjoyed. The fact that now he was really focusing on what was inside those panels, as far as the storytelling goes. So, so yeah, he put a lot of effort and thought into it as well, and I really appreciate what he did. I mean, it's it is it is top to bottom. It's a collaboration. If I if I never had to work with anybody but Pat Olive again, I would be you know I'd I'd die a happy man. <laughs> a long time from now, but I would die a happy man. <laughs> so, a, a question as well, and thinking about again how you're pacing pages. I mean that last page works so well in guided view do you think you would have structured it differently because of the kind of the surprise of it if you were doing you know traditional kind of thinking full page as opposed to having these panels really drive it home because when you're using when you're using the guided view as you said that really hits you as a big surprise like you don't really see it coming yeah 
Yeah, and what we what we would have done if it was just a print comic is that the you know the the final surprise would have been on a on a page turn so that you can't see it. But then if you do it on a page turn, then it winds up being a full page splash or something like that, and and then you don't get you get like a whole half a page or more uh, that you can't use for storytelling and you know that's one of the things about working in comics for me is that um in in order to maintain some of those surprises in print you you wind up having to sacrifice additional story space you know the the, on on the print page all of those last five panels are are on the same page um but if we if we were looking at it as as something that would be much more specifically for print, then we yeah we would have absolutely approached it from a different way. So so that's one of the ways that we were thinking more about guided view. But it was really important to us to tell to tell impactful stories within the the twenty to twenty four page format, and and that means you know no two page splashes, no full page splash, um, no um, no oversized panels on a page uh you know we, we, we basically want to try to get as much of the story in there as we can character comedy drama all of that stuff we just want to pack it in there as much as possible so you know and again that's it's it's I, at first i was worried that it would, it would be less fun for pat because he doesn't get to do those big you know fun moments where you really kind of get let loose as an artist but but he he loves this the, what we're doing story wise so much that he doesn't miss it. He actually says that he enjoys doing this even more. Hmm. So I'll take him at his word, and I'm glad he is because man, <laughs> I, I I love working with the guy. It's just fantastic. It is interesting that to hear you talk about it. It's almost like you're you're unlearning every trick that you learned to use in comics and the kind of mainstream comics, where using the splash page, using this, using that, using kind of these other shorthands, and you're kind of unlearning all those techniques and going back to a very pure kind of storytelling with you know more traditional grids. Considered, hello. Yep, still here. You there? Yep. Oh, okay. Sorry, I heard just heard some buzzing. Um, yeah, um, yeah, that was that was the weirdest part. I think when um, when I first saw Guided View, I thought, "Oh, this is this is pretty cool. This has some potential." But it wasn't really until I started working with it that I had to start unlearning some of that stuff. And and you know, Pat and I made a conscious choice: Are we going to approach this for for comicsology, uh, or are we going to approach it for print? And we decided we wanted to kind of go whole hog in on the guided view comicsology approach. That um, you know that we wanted to try to get more into it than than um, than into the print version. So so we really we yeah we we pulled out a lot of things that we would have done. I had I had two page splashes in, a, in several of the issues. I've written I don't know how many scripts now, <laughs> and uh, and we wound up pulling all of those out. There they. And, and you know Pat does some amazing two-page splashes, you know two-page spreads. And um, but uh, you know he was much more interested in telling the story. He's such a great visual storyteller. He loves drawing the characters and the way they interact with each other. And you know, um, so yeah, yeah, it was it was unlearning so much about the way that we approached it. 
Now, I talked with him about this, but I'm, I'm curious about your perspective as well. I mean, this is you're both you're both working on this as a creator-owned project. It's through Comicsology Originals. What is it like working with them? Because what I kind of mentioned to Pat was that you know Comicsology, because it's their own programming, it's almost like getting a Netflix original. Like it's going to always be on the kind of the top page because it's their product as opposed to just something that they happen to be carrying, like all the you know traditional stuff. So it's interesting because you know you're going to the premier place where you can get digital comics, and they're promoting their stuff, which is now your stuff. So what is it like to work with them and then to be have that promotion through the mechanism of Comixology? Oh, it's been phenomenal. I mean, it's like an entirely different experience. When I was going through um, the Marvel and DC years, um, I would get a request for an interview. And the first thing I would do is what I would, I would call them up and say, is it okay if I do this interview? And they go, yeah, if you want. You know, I mean, whereas uh, Amazon and Comixology... And I would, you know, I would do the interview. I would type up all my responses. I would send it to their offices, and they'd say, "Why did you send us this?" <laughs> and and here, here, I mean, you've you've dealt with with Pamela, and she's fantastic, and you know, she organizes all of this stuff, and she sends us out information. She tells us, you know, what to talk about, and what we're allowed to say, and what we what we should really hold back for future issues, and and uh, so it's it's much more like dealing with the people that I deal with in animation, you know, where they've got much more of a, it's, you might think of it as greater control, but it's really more just organization. You know, they, you, you know where you need to be, you know what you're supposed to say, what you're not supposed to say. You don't hear from somebody two days later saying, I can't believe you said that in that interview. You know, Mm. um, the the people at Amazon, you know, they, they know what we're going to talk about ahead of time. And then they send me the, the, uh, an email afterwards. Thanks for doing that. You know, thanks for um, you know promoting the the book, and um, we were so appreciated. They're just great. They're just really, really terrific to work for. Not not at all what I was expecting. And and honestly, it, it's sort of mind blowing to get you know one of those spam animate Amazon emails and then see your comic book at the top of the banner. <laughs> you know, now on sale, Edge World number one. It's like whoa, that's bizarre. So, so I, I have to say it's been a, it's been a terrific experience. They've been fantastic. I really enjoy working with them and they're very supportive and they don't, they don't change what we do. They seem to like what we're doing. They seem to like, I mean, you know, they've seen four issues so far and they've liked them all quite a bit. So, um, I'm happy, you know, I mean, it's. Is that, is, am I answering the question you asked? <laughs> you are, you are, you are. No, it does bring up another question. So obviously you've been out of the, the comics game for a while, and obviously that experience ended a certain way. What have been, been the biggest takeaways kind of coming back and working in a, a wholly different environment? I mean, it couldn't be more different because you know, not only are you creator-owned, but you're going through you know a digital platform that you know, flat-out didn't really exist when you were last kind of working regularly in comics. So what, has it, what have been the main takeaways from you kind of getting back into it, so to speak? Um, well, you're right. It's completely different. It's like night and day. Um, I, I mean, I, I love the editors that I worked with. Mike March is, you know, still one of my favorite people. And Mike Rach was fantastic. It's so great to work with. Um, but, uh, um, uh, but you know, it's, it's just a completely different experience. Marvel and DC were always sort of struggling and, and they had their way of doing things, and it was often very confusing. But it was generally run by by people who were fans of the medium. You know, they loved comics. They loved superhero comics in particular. They knew all about the minutia and the details and the continuity. And 
and so you know so you could always talk about that stuff whereas whereas now it's like dealing with you know people who are are approaching this as we want to expand the medium we want different genres we want a different approach we want um something that appeals to science fiction fans maybe romance fans maybe mystery fans and and so um because that's that's what their bread and butter was when they first started out you know they they sell books and they sell books by genre and they have things categorized and broken down and if you like one particular thing they know exactly what to recommend of another particular thing and so it's it's a very different much more um for lack of a better word, I guess, professional approach than, than what I was used to before. Um, uh, and, you know, the people are, are really wonderful. I, I really like them all. I like working with them and, you know, I, I get these really encouraging emails from them and um, it's just kind of nice. But it's it, it's also, I think the part that, that kind of caught me off guard is that it's, it's, I mean, I work for DreamWorks and that's what it's like working with DreamWorks. You know, they have they approach it as a business and we're trying to reach an audience as, you know, as, as wide an audience as possible. And, and, you know, we'll take chances and we'll take risks and we want to push the medium forward and we want to try different things. But, but ultimately at the end of the day, what we want to make is a good show. We don't want to make a good superhero show. We don't want to make a good, this kind of show. We want to make stuff that appeals to, to, you know, television viewers and who's, who doesn't watch television. So, um, Amazon, I think, is sort of the same way. They're trying to appeal to to readers and maybe comics fans who don't read comics anymore. Maybe um, uh, science fiction fans, in our case, who haven't read a comic before, but are looking for something a little different. And um, so it's a it's a it's a unique experience, you know. I mean, uh, Marvel and DC they do superheroes. They do them better than anybody on the face of the earth. But um, I could never imagine doing Edge World. Uh, for Marvel or DC, so mm-hmm. um, so I like it. I'm having fun. That's good. Um, back to the kind of the Marvel and DC years for a second. So I mean, you you worked on the X Men, you worked on the Exiles. Uh, what I mean, first of all, Exiles. I always really enjoyed your stuff. I mean, you had a a big task, I think, taking over for Judd Winnick because he had such a uh, he really yeah. breathed life into that concept and made it work. But you took it to new levels and oh, new yeah. things with it. So what was it like to? take on that because that's a very different book to take on obviously than the you know the quote-unquote regular x-men book or you know setting the main continuity you got yeah, a book it, you could do anything with yeah and in a lot of ways that's that was i think the, the thing that worked even better for me um because my my storytelling sense tends to be more i think more general mainstream than than specifically for fandom and uh and the great thing about Exiles was that it was it was set within Marvel continuity, but it was turning it all on its ear. So if I wanted to try something weird or different, um, I could. You know, if I wanted to kill a character, that was perfectly fine. You know, you just replace them with a new un- and interesting character from some other dimension. And and yeah, it was. I mean, it was hellaciously difficult following Judd Winnick because he was so so good at what he did. But, um, but, you know, Mike H was there to hold my hand and he gave me uh, ideas and outlines and helped me with characters. And, and, and because we could go further in that book than we, we did in Uncanny, um, I had a, I had a, I think I had a much better time with it. I really enjoyed Exiles. It was, it was, it was pretty out there and pretty interesting, you know, um, 
What, uh, again, does that answer your question? No, it does. Um, working on Exiles, I mean, I, again, you you took it to new kind of new levels. Um, loved what you did with uh, the Hyperion character in that book. Um, what were some of the like? I guess the highlights or maybe the characters that you really liked writing from that run. Well, that was 15 years ago. So now you you, you <laughs> and I haven't looked at it since. So That's okay. Uh, I have to remember. The names of characters. Um, uh, Ileana was the, was crazy, and she was fun to write. I, I enjoy writing crazy characters. Um, uh, people who are a little unhinged. Um, who was the the guy with the the white head and the and the uh, the big eyes? He was um, Morph. I can't. Morph. Morph. I enjoyed Morph. It was fun playing around with him because we were able to give him a little bit of depth and dimension, particularly in his relationship with Ileana, I think, mm-hmm. if I'm remembering this correctly. Yeah. Um, but but it was really, there wasn't anybody I didn't enjoy. I mean, I, I enjoyed writing Harperian, and, and he was j- just a dick. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he was an unpleasant human being, but sometimes you get to sort of let out your darker side and and just have fun with it when you're writing this stuff. So, so there was, there was a lot of, I just, I had a great time. All I remember was having a blast. Mike Rach and I just would talk and, and come up with ideas and throw things back and forth and, and laugh, you know, it was just terrific. So, um, I don't think there was anything about that book that I didn't enjoy. I just loved it. And I particularly loved it because when I would go into comic shops or to, to comics conventions, people would come up to me and go, God, God I hate your uncanny X-Men, but Exiles, Exiles is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, there was that. <laughs> yeah. So I, I guess, I mean, I got to have to ask, I mean, going through that period, you must have developed a bit of a, or started to develop a thick skin about how, unfortunately vile at times fandom can be and toxic so how do you how did you survive toxic fandom well um you know when you're i didn't handle it really well at first um i got into some back and forths with some people on on in chat you know the in the chat rooms after interviews and stuff and um, it was the early days of the internet, and it, it was, you know, I mean, really diehard, uh, angry internet was just kind of starting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't handle it really well at first, and I think that was to my detriment because I think it just sort of set people off in the wrong direction. But eventually, what you realize is that that's that's just all insecurity, you know. I mean, I was still a, a, a new, relatively new young writer who was still learning his trade. And so when people tell you you suck, there's a part of you that goes, oh, my God, maybe I really suck. <laughs> you know, and that's that's the part that's really tough. It wasn't until I, I um, like a year or two later when I had had enough new people come up to me at convention saying, you know, I gave up comics years ago, but I started reading yours because it really spoke to me, that I started to realize that, um, that, you know, maybe my stuff doesn't suck. Maybe I'm just writing for the wrong marketplace or the wrong audience. And and that started making me feel, that gave me a thicker skin because then I started to pe- feel better about myself. And, you know, I'll, in, in all honesty, because of all the criticism, I, I, I spent a lot of time studying writing. You know, I read a lot of writing books. I really tried to hone up on just the craft of it to understand it better. I watched videos. I don't know how many times I watched the, the uh, Joseph Campbell um, interviews with Bill Moyers, but, um, but I, I, 
because of that, I tried to make myself a better writer. I tried to to become someone that the fans wouldn't hate so much. But after a while, you start to realize that that the fans just feel like they have a, a, a greater ownership of the characters. They've been fans longer than you have. And, you know, I, I met, you know, I ran across people who were diehard fans of Juggernaut long before I ever used them in the X-Men. And they were just livid about what I had done. Not because they didn't, the, the stories couldn't have resonated with them in a, in a different circumstance, but because they had a completely different vision of what Juggernaut was. And they felt like, you know, I was here before you. Who do you think you are? So, so you start to sort of understand people's points of view a little bit. You start to un- see where they're coming from. And and so that's where the thick skin comes from. And then after I left comics and I started working professionally, it turned out that everything that I had learned and everything that I had done in comics worked great for animation and television. So so it, I, I realized I, you know, what I was thinking was right, that I was it wasn't so much my writing as it was I was writing for the wrong audience. I was writing for the wrong marketplace. You know, I mean, I was not, you know, I'm not Jeff Johns. I don't write these amazing, you know, deep continuity stories that, you know, diehard fans love and, and really get into. I, I write, I try to write Twilight Zone episodes, you know. I try <laughs> to write stories that catch people off guard. Um, so it's a different thing. It's a different marketplace. And, and that thick skin comes from, I think, learning to be a little more secure with your craft and with what you do. And, and uh, you know, and now, I'm, now I've been pretty successful for a number of years in a completely different industry. And, you know, people could say whatever they want. It just doesn't phase me anymore these days, most of the time. Mm-hmm. A question I have, again, very early on, I guess in, in the Marvel experience, uh, you worked with uh, Bendis on an Electra book. What was it like working on that on that first arc? It was phenomenal. Um, Brian was an amazing writer. Um, he came up with some incredible ideas, um, and I, you know, and they, I had sent in those War Machine samples, and so they wanted me to be kind of experimental with that CG system. And uh, you know, I was using, it was, I called it a CG assist, where I was using 3D models and then drawing over the top of them, but. Um, and you know he was really supportive of that, so it was it was a pretty great experience. I enjoyed it. I loved the stories. I loved the characters. I loved he he was always catching me off guard with things that he would do in the scripts. I, um, uh, it was great. It was a lot of fun. But it just it came to the point where um, I just couldn't I couldn't draw anymore because they were asking me to write so much. Mm. And um, so you know, uh, Electra came to an end, and and I went off and became a, a writer for them more than anything else at that point mm-hmm. going back to War Machine for a second it's interesting again when they, when they originally published that it was like a weekly series was it always kind of designed that way or like how were you working on that with them and then they ended up publishing it so quickly like it was I think published over the course of just three months but you got 12 issues so what was that process like in terms yeah. of developing that and was it always with that kind of weekly frame of mind that it would be kind of hitting so quick and fast yeah, uh, it was. That was always the plan. In fact, because I was always a big manga fan, um, sort of more specific manga. I'm not just I'm not a general manga fan, but I liked. I mean, you want to talk about decompressed storytelling? The way that they tell stories is very open and, and decompressed. Um, but uh, but it works better for them because they have the weekly process. You know, where they were they're putting out 16 to 20 pages a week and. And so you don't feel like you're having to wait so long for a decompressed story to unfold. And 
and I had put together this thing with this crazy idea of doing a weekly comic and and I was working with uh, an, an animation studio at the time who was taking my uh, thumbnails and layouts and, and converting them into finished pages and 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 I said look I think I can do this and and Casada wanted me to finish Electra first. He didn't really. He, he wanted to sort of see how people responded to the style that I was using at that point. And and uh, but then eventually they greenlit it. But they they always greenlit it with the uh, the point of view of it being a weekly comic. Without my knowing about it, they had discussed it internally. Uh, this is what Joe had told me later that they had discussed it internally in various different meetings, and they figured out a way to do it that was incredibly cost effective because because they were going to approach it as a weekly comic up front for 12 issues they could actually gang print them together so that you weren't printing just the first issue at a time you would print i don't know the first four or the first six together and save money and costs because you would you would print them all up and then bind them all together and then just distribute them once a week and um and it, and it worked great. I, I don't think we missed a deadline. I think we only, uh, I mean, Brian Smith was my editor at the time. I think he might be able to tell you better than me. I think we might have missed one deadline by a couple of days, but nobody ever knew that on the back end because the, the, the books all hit the stores every week. Um, and uh, um, so that was, that was, that was always planned from the very beginning. That was the goal was to do a weekly comic. And actually I was in, uh, I was vacationing in England with my um uh, my then wife and, and kids and and uh, they called me and said they actually wanted to pick it up as a regular series, a regular weekly series. Um, but between the end of my vacation and coming back to the states, they had changed their minds and decided they wanted me to write the X Men instead. So um, War Machine went away, and and um, you know I broke every fan's heart because I became the the writer on Uncanny X Men. <laughs> I mean, I feel like that would have been a thankless job no matter what, because I mean, I mean, I mean, it must say something that they didn't have anyone else. No, no offense, do I? And I don't mean this that way, but you know, they, did, they didn't have anyone else to kind of tap to do it at that time. It's, it's curious that you know this number one property is having difficulty finding a writer. Well, I don't. I you know, I don't know. I, I like I said, I didn't really know all that much about the internal workings of Marvel and what they were doing or why. So um, I don't know what, what the reason is that they decided to go with an, a, a weird unknown whose only credit was drawing uh, Electra, and I think at that point, or um, and you know, and doing this weird weekly War Machine comic, but but they did uh, they t- they took a chance on me, and um, I don't know, I wrote something like forty issues of the X of various different X titles, I even won a few awards. I've got still got one of them hanging on my wall here, but. Um, they, uh, I, I don't, yeah, I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. It was just, that's one of the things that I often tell people is that so much of getting work in this business or any other business is just luck. It's just dumb luck. Mm-hmm. But you got to be prepared for that luck. You got to have something to come in with to show people when that lucky moment happens. And, and I guess because I had done War Machine and proved myself as a commodity, it made them more willing to give me a shot as, as the writer on X-Men. Cause you know, if I could turn out a script a week, on, on War Machine, they figured that I could at least do one a month on, on Uncanny, and and um, and then they wound up going bi-weekly for a while uh, on Uncanny, so I was doing two a month instead of one a month, but um, yeah, I don't know, yeah, I don't know all those reasons, the internal reasons for why they did it, I'll just, I was glad they did, I enjoyed it, I had a lot of fun doing mm-hmm. it, and, you know. What, uh, when at that time, like again, you're working for Marvel, and then you also pick up some DC projects. 
first of all, what was it like coming back to DC technically? Cause you had done action comics weekly, like 10 years earlier. And also, you know, what, what were, what was the editorial kind of shift working for Marvel and then also working for DC at the same time in terms of their overall approaches? Um, I think, well, I've, I've heard this described before, but, um, the, the sort of the difference between Marvel and DC was at Marvel, you always felt like they were just sort of hanging on by their fingernails, <laughs> you know, that they didn't know if they were going to have enough money to, to be, be open next week. And, and at DC, they were, you know, they always had enough money because they were owned by Warner Brothers. So everybody was always kind of comfortable and secure. So there was a different vibe. I, I liked the energy at Marvel because it was like, let's try this you know i mean look like they hired me on uncanny probably for that same reason it's like hey let's try this why not let's see how it goes um and so there was a a, that kind of creative energy and and try anything attitude is always kind of fun um but uh, as far as how that happened um yeah, I know it was a weird kind because they were. I know that they had that was around the time of the contracts, and they were they were locking people into companies so that you didn't go to work for one company or the other. You only you stayed at Marvel or at DC, but not at both. But um, I had they had never locked me into a contract, and then uh, I got a call from I got a call out of the blue from Eddie Berganza. He needed three stories. I think he needed three stories for Superman and. And he said, "Hey, Jeff Johns recommended you. Can you? Do you think you can write me three stories for Superman?" I said, "God, I don't know. I, I don't like Superman." <laughs> he, said, <laughs> he said, "Well, maybe that's good. Maybe you'll, maybe you'll look at the character from a point of view that nobody else has looked at him from." And I went, "All right, I'll, I'll see what I can come up with. What do you want first? Outline scripts?" And he goes, "Well, just send me some ideas, some outlines, and, and if I like them, I'll pick one, and we'll go from there." And I went, "Okay, great." So, I don't know. I put together three or four outlines and I sent them in and Eddie calls me up the next day and he goes, he goes, these are really good. I really like these ideas. He says, you really did come up with something that I've never seen before. And I went, uh, okay. I said, which one do you want? And he goes, no, I want them all. And I went, oh, uh, all right. So when do you want? And he goes, can you finish it by the end of the week? <laughs> are you, are you out of your mind? I don't think so. And he goes, well, yeah, that's probably too fast, but you know, just as, as quickly as you can. Cause I, I got, he says, I got books to fill and I, I, I have artists waiting for scripts and can you, you know, please get something done. So I said, yeah, sure. So, um, I wrote, uh, I, I wrote them out. Um, two of them wound up getting published and, and I think the other ones, one of them got drawn and the other one wound up in a drawer someplace. Um, but the uh, one of one of them that was drawn never never got published. It got it also got put in a drawer someplace. But the two that came out, I, I, I was pretty proud of, and they seemed to do really well, and they got great response. So um, you know, similar kind of thing when Superman, all the Superman books, they were you know they turned over and they were looking for new people. Um, they they asked if I wanted to write Superman full time, and I said um, I said yeah, but only if I can do it kind of like. Siegel and Schuster, because that's the only Superman version that I really liked, and and they said, all right, so give it a try. So that happened, and then when it got announced, um, Joe called me up and he said, why are you working for DC? <laughs> I said, is that is that a problem? I didn't know that would be a problem. And he goes, well, yeah, it's a problem. If you have more time, I, I would give you more work, and so it, you know, it created a little bit of tension, and and then I said, well, look, Joe, you know, I, I love working with you and Marvel. I'm not I'm not going to take any more work from him. And he goes, well. If, well, if you promise you won't, you know that it will. It'll be okay. You know, we can we can figure it out. So, 
you know, he sort of calmed down. He realized I wasn't like looking to bail or jump ship or anything. And so, um, so that's how I wound up working for both companies at the same time on two of their biggest titles, which is like, how does that even happen? I have no idea. It is definitely an interesting outlier. Like, you know, that, that could happen. It's, it's, it's just, it's an interesting interest industry, obviously. I mean, it's just, it operates in a different strata than a lot of more typical kind of, you know, mainstream, you know, uh, creative endeavors, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, there is some, there is some of that, I guess, in, in other creative businesses. I know that there are some companies out here that are also in com- competition with each other and they don't like it when, when you leave to go to work for that other company. So, you know, I guess it's, it's just the same kind of thing. Creative, really good creative talent is rare and hard to come by and you kind of want to keep them if you can. So what is it like now for you working on Edgeworld, where Edgeworld, um, obviously it's like this this thing you really like, and it's a great experience with Pat, definitely a passion project, but again, you have a full-time job doing, you know, in animation. What is it like to kind of balance the two, and does it make you enjoy Edgeworld more, because it's almost like it's the creative release, it's you being having more control over something that's just you and Pat kind of jamming and riffing and have a good time while you're still doing the other work, which you still enjoy, but it is, you know, different. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's it's very different. It's it's fantastic. I I, I love working on Edgeworld, and uh, and I love my day job. I enjoy it a lot. But yeah, it's a it's a different beast. You know, you get I get when Pat and I started doing this. I, I don't know if he told you the story, but you know, he called me up. He wanted to do something creatively owned that you know he had a stake in, and we had come up with a couple of pitches years ago that he always loved, and he said maybe we can try and revive those and and. Uh, and we and we so we tried and nobody was interested and then I told him about Edgeworld and and uh, he got really excited and we just started almost pretty much doing it you know I was writing scripts for months and I just kept sending him new scripts all the time and he kept sending me new drawings all the time and I think that passion just sort of carried through uh, you know I had enough money that we were going to self publish it ourselves and. Um, Put it out through Comixology because it, you know, there's no uh, printing costs or any of that other stuff. And I, I knew Chip Mosier at Comixology, so I started asking him questions about it. And you know, how do we present it? And how do we? I'm not looking to publish it because at that point he wasn't a publisher. He was just a, essentially just a, a, an on, a digital distributor. And, uh, and but I was kind of excited about the comics view thing, and so we had a couple of dinners about it, and then. Then he told me that they were doing, um, they were going to start publishing it. Uh, they they were interested in publishing. They had a couple of titles already lined up, and would I be interested in doing something for them? And I said, well, Pat and I really want to do this thing just on our own. You know, we don't want, there's no money in it, so we just want to, we want to have a great time. And he goes, I'll let you guys have a great time. So, <laughs> so it just sort of evolved in that direction, and and it just keeps getting better and more fun. But it's it is. It is absolutely the ideal experience. I, I, I keep I knock wood when I talk about this all the time because I just can't believe how fortunate I am. I love Pat. I love our editor Biz Biz Stringer Horn. She's fantastic. She's a huge science fiction fan, and she loves talking about the concepts and the scripts and the stories and what order they should come in and what the characters are like. And can we push this a little more? Um, Jody, the letterer, gives this fantastic visual design. For the for the whole series, uh, uh, you know, and she's just incredibly detail oriented and, and really wonderful. Lee Lawfridge is a terrific colorist, and and you know, really, other than a few notes here and there to 
to deal with typos or, or you know, coloring errors or, um, in, you know, even Pat will do, redraw a panel or I'll go back and rewrite. Sometimes I, I've gone back and rewritten entire scripts, which, uh, you know, I never used to do. And um, uh, But, you know, when it's your own, you, you just want it to be the best that it can be. And even though we're not getting that, any real money from it, um, it's just we love it so much that we'll go back in and rework stuff. And uh, um, so it is completely different. It's completely different from my day job. My day job is I work on a, I work on a show. Uh, it's not my own show. It's a show that was uh, created there at DreamWorks um, uh, by uh, a couple of uh, very fun and smart guys that I get to work with every day that I really like. And, um, but you know, we get, there's a, there's a lot of money funneled into that project is, because animation projects are just expensive, and so there's a lot of oversight. There's a lot of notes. There's a lot of technical difficulties. You know, you're working with different animation studios, and you're working with different uh, board artists. Some are young, some are experienced, um, and there's just always a lot of uh, work to be done when you're putting together a show like that. So, so yeah, it's a completely different experience. And plus, you're right. You don't have the same emotional connection. As much as I love the characters and I love the show that we're doing. It's it's not mine, you know. It's not something that I came up with. Um, whereas Edgeworld, you know, Pat and I, we still we still go over the scripts. You know, he calls me up and he goes, "What do you think about this for this character? And what do you think can can we put in a scene like this?" And and I, I get he just gets me more excited when he does that. It's not like he's giving me notes. It's like he, you know, it's that little kid in him that wants to do something cool and fun, and I'm right there with him. So. <laughs> Sorry, I'm over-explaining it, but it's, no, no, I, I, I love it. I, I, yeah, no, that's. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, when I was talking with Pat before, he had said that also. I think one of the reasons why he really wanted to do something creator-owned or was more interested and excited about it was because of his experience doing Rough Riders. He loved it, but again, he didn't have the stake in it. It wasn't his. Uh, he's put so much yeah. into it, and obviously bringing it alive, and it really, you know, let, let him do a lot of different things and, and do a lot of research and, and like really expand what he could do on the page. But he didn't own it. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it wasn't yeah. his, and yeah. that he wanted to kind of be able to do something that was his. Yeah, yeah, and I'm glad. I'm so glad he did because I wouldn't have done this without him. This is not something that was on my horizon at all, and uh, so I'm really grateful that he called said he wanted to do it because I'm having the time of my life. What was it like the first time you, I mean, obviously I think you guys first worked together about 18 years ago or something like that on the call. What was that original experience like? Because obviously it had enough of an impact and you guys liked each other enough that you kept, you know, kept your friendship going all this time. Even, you know, with you out of comics, you're still friends and still talk about projects that you could work on together. And eventually finally it happens with Edgeworld. So obviously that had a huge impact, but what was that initial experience like working together? Oh, it was it was fantastic. At first, it was a little awkward because Pat um, Pat had worked Marvel style for years, so he was used to getting outlines, and then he would go through and figure out the storytelling, and he liked that part of the process. He's he he's sort of like me when I was getting into the business. I was it was all about the story, so he he likes that that um, thinking thinking it through part, and so. I sent him this full script. We actually, I think we spoke beforehand, and I said, you know, he says, how do you work? I said, well, you know, I I do full script, you know, panel descriptions. And so I said, uh, you know, and I'd like to know how many panels per page. You know, do you want to kind of keep it light or do you want to go heavy? And he goes, I like to work from outline. And I went, and it was like, it was almost like this 
you know, I don't know if I want to work with you kind of thing. <laughs> the way he, the way he said it was like, maybe I should call Marvel and see about another project. And I thought, you know, I, I, Pat, if you want me to, to, to change the outline, I'll, I'll, I'll do that for you. Cause I think your storytelling is fantastic and I would love to work with you. And, and, uh, and I said, but you know, um, yeah, I've got a script. I can send it to you, and you can see what you think. And if you want, I'll just pull back from now on, you know. And and he goes, there was kind of the silence on the phone. He goes, okay, send it to me. So so I sent it, and he read it, and he called me up a couple of days later, and he and I was afraid he was going to tell me, yeah, I don't, I don't want to do it this way. I need you. And then I was going to have to go back and figure out how to write an outline because I don't, I'd never written, you know, Marvel style before, and. Uh, and he said, you know, I, I actually like this. He said, uh, he said, you got a good visual sense. It must be because you were an artist. And I said, I, I think so. I think that's why. He says, yeah, no, actually, it was kind of cool. It gave me some springboards for some ideas. So, so what do you think of this? And then he started pitching me ideas. And usually when I, when I was working in the business, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't always want the artist's ideas, not because I didn't like working with them or their creativity, but you know, they, they want to draw a dinosaur or they want to draw something that doesn't have anything to do with the story. And I'm so story oriented that I would always balk when I would get these, you know, requests for, you know, story ideas or whatever. And, and, but Pat started pitching me on story specific stuff, you know, like, okay, if the care, if the character's a fireman, then his costume should be like a fireman's costume, right? Because that's, that's how he identifies himself. And I was thinking, dude, yeah, that would be awesome. That's, that's what was in my head. And he goes, he goes, but not too like Tony Stark high tech. And I went, no, 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 that's not the direction I want to go at all. So we started breaking it down and I realized, oh my God, I'm really in sync with this guy. And then there was a scene in there where this, uh, I don't, you know, it's again, it's 18 years ago and I haven't read it since, but, um, there's a scene where this guy goes around, um, murdering people who were, I don't remember what the reason was, but he's murdering people that were somehow involved with something they shouldn't have been. And so he he goes through, he, he basically murders a mother and he goes into the house and he murders all of her children, but it's all off panel. And instead what you see is um, the guy kills the woman and she falls over and the screen door bangs her in the head, but her eyes are still open. And you just hear the gunshots and the kids screaming inside the house and then you see the guy stepping back out of the door again and the door again closes and hits the you know, hits the dead woman in the face. And he was like, Oh my God, I can't wait to draw that. <laughs> he said, I don't get used, I don't usually get to draw stuff that dark and, and intense. And so, and that was it, man. We were just friends from there on out. And then we, and, and what's really funny is that we never, didn't, you know, it's not like we hung out. It's not like I lived next door to him or anything. We would run into each other at conventions and, and he and I are both sort of quiet, private people. So, you know, I'm not into, like hanging out with whoever at the conventions and I, I get up early because I have a kid and he gets up early because he has a kid and we would get down and we'd see each other at the cafeteria and it was like well I was going to eat alone but I guess I could eat with you <laughs> <laughs> and so so we would have breakfast together and we just have an awesome time you know we just love talking to each other and so then we would make plans to meet up later on at the convention or hang out or whatever and and so we were like convention friends and it just bled over because I, every time I had a project come up the first person I would say was well, I'd love to work with Pat Olive again, um, and uh, so we were always, you know, we we were always in touch with each other, trying to come up with ideas, some other way that we could find to work with each other again, and and uh, you know, eventually it just it looked like it was never going to happen, and so you know, we didn't 
we didn't stay in contact as much as we used to. And, you know, once in a while I'd drop him an email, he'd drop me an email or something. And and then uh, one day I, th- I think he sent me an email. He says, hey, you got some time? I'd like to talk to you about something. And I went, yeah, sure, anytime. So he calls me and, and you know, now it's rolled. So so that's sort of the story of my, my friendship with Pat Olaf and, and how <laughs> how I approach writing with him. That's excellent. And I have no idea if that was the question you asked me or not. <laughs> well, I know. I, I wanted to know about the genesis of that relationship. So, you know, you definitely hit the hit all the beats there. Yeah. So before yeah. we let you go, I do want to give you a... Like, I don't know what you're allowed to say or what you're allowed to tease about Edgeworld uh, for the you know next couple issues. Uh, but what can you tell us about what to expect uh, after the, you know, fantastic first issue? Oh, thanks. That's very nice of you to say. Um, what can we expect? Um... The there are more stories. <laughs> uh, the thing is that they're because they're sort of one and dones. Even though they have a, a story thread that runs through them, um, it, it's uh, uh, I, I, I'm loath to spoil anything. Um, uh, there's I guess in a lot of ways I guess the first cover kind of tells you where things are going that. There's this kind of uh, relationship between um, Killian and Shay and and Chila that just continues to, to develop, and and um, and the stories that get them there are are some of the sto- most fun stories I've I've ever written and ever had a uh, had uh, drawn by somebody else. Pat just did an incredible job with them. The third issue is actually the very first script that I wrote when I was trying to show him what I wanted to do with the series, and he's been chomping at the bit, had been chomping at the bit to draw that thing forever because we kept switching the order around, and and uh, and he loved all the other scripts and he was really happy with them, but there was just something about that that first script that we wrote together that you know it's obviously it's that got that sentimental value to it and. And he just nailed it. He just absolutely nailed that story, and so I can't wait for people to see it. But it's it's um, it's it's it has to do with I don't know how I, how do I talk about this? I don't think I can talk about it because it's only one issue. I don't think I can really mention anything without spoiling stuff. And I mean, I think um, you've hyped me up for it already because I want to see what, okay, what, what what Pat wanted to do so bad. So. <laughs> That's that's a that's a that's a, a good way to hype it up. Uh, actually, okay. one last question about the book. Just because I thought of it, when you write the first script, and obviously you have a, an internal voice for Killian in your mind, uh, maybe you have an actual like voice. I don't know if you ever kind of cast that way in your head in terms of how you think that person's speaking. How does that change when you first see what Pat gives you? I mean, we've already you've already said he he gave him a beard. He does not wear the hat. So does that actual voice start to change to kind of match that that new visual that Pat's given you? Yeah, the voice does start to change, and the the, the history of the character starts to change. Because when when he sent that first picture of Pat, he did uh, the by Pat the when Pat when he did, when Pat sent me that first image of Killian, um, you know he's got the he's got the old ratty coat and the ratty pants, and they're tucked into sort of these high tech boots, and and my first thought was I this isn't what I was imagining at all, and and but once I got over that, I thought, oh my god, this is so good because it, it he went from being sort of the you know the the hero sheriff to 
this is a guy that's lived a life, you know. This is a guy that has a past. This is a guy that has gone through some crap, and and he's here just like everybody else that lives here because he doesn't really have any place else to go, and because he's tied to it in some personal way that has meaning to him. So yeah, it went from sort of generic hero to. You know, he's the, he was he was a soldier, and the war is over, and now he's looking for work, and he's here, and and he stayed here for a specific reason, and and those boots that he's wearing are his soldier's boots, and um, and then there's a story about those soldier's boots, and then there's a story about um, uh, uh, how he um, how what it was that caused him to come back to Pala after the war to stay and to live and and uh, and all, none of those stories would have happened if Pat hadn't done that drawing he mm-hmm. hadn't given him that beard this, you know this is a this is a broken dude and uh, he's trying to find some redemption in his life and um, so yeah that that's how it changed and that and I you know thank God for Pat because <laughs> it's <laughs> so much more interesting believe me because of what he did I mean, that sounds like the, uh, a great, fruitful collaboration, right, where you guys are able to riff off of each other and really, uh, it's kind of like jazz. You're kind of making it work. Like, you have ideas, but you're making it better because you work on it together. Yeah, yeah, that's actually a great way of describing it, yeah. I, I completely feel that way. It's been fantastic. Well, Chuck, thank you so much for taking time out of your day today to talk about Edgeworld and your career in comics. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. That's my pleasure, too, Adam. Thank you so much for making the time. <laughs>